Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for April 2023. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. And today we're going to cover the best of the issue once again. We've got, what, seven papers for you, I think, we're going to go through. And we're going to start off with a very interesting paper about the impact of emergency physician gender on the management of patients with early pregnancy loss. So, yeah, so I'm going to look at this paper and just a trigger warning for any of our listeners out there. This can be a sensitive topic, so I'd probably just mute us for a couple of minutes while I talk about this paper. So this paper um, around emergency physician gender and its association or is there an association with early pregnancy loss management in the emergency department was done by our Canadian colleagues with the first author being Sarja et al., And this study uh, essentially set about looking to see how emergency physician gender impacts the care of emergency department patients experiencing early pregnancy loss. And what they were using as their primary outcome was the rates of obstetric consultation for early pregnancy loss across the emergency physician gender and thinking about other secondary outcomes such as rates of operative management via dilation and curtilage, uh, so DNC, any returns to the department or returns for DNC or total DNC rates. And their hypothesis, which sort of mirrors other gender-themed papers of across a multitude of topics around medicine, was that female physicians have more patient-centred communication style and therefore would likely more frequently consult specialists and therefore consult their obstetric colleagues. So this paper looked at four emergency departments across Calgary in Canada and big sets of numbers involved um, with this paper. Overall, they looked over a five-year period with 4,617 patients presenting to one of these four emergency departments. And after the usual exclusions and and what have you, just over 2,630 patients were included. 98 emergency physicians accounted to looking after these just over 2,500 patients. And, and it's important to note that there were 22 female physicians seeing a median of 20 cases and the male patients were seeing 23 patients over this period. Overall, 70% of the doctors in Calgary were male and they accounted for 74% of all the emergency medicine shifts that occurred within the emergency department. So the typical age of these patients was sort of in their early 30s. And what they found was, was that female physicians saw a higher proportion of incomplete spontaneous abortions, about 68%, compared to their male physicians who had this at around 62.5%. Male physicians, interestingly, were more likely to be trained through a family medicine program. They were tended to be older and they tended to have been in practice for a longer period of time. And using very clever multivariable regression models and analysis, the odds ratio of receiving an obstetric consultation were higher for patients seen by a female emergency physician uh, with an odds ratio of around 1.50 And patients that were seen by a female physician were also more likely to receive an initial DNC and were less likely to return to care for a DNC. 
Overall, there were no significant differences in the rates of emergency department returns or total DNC cases. And, you know, this was taken into account for years training, uh, how you trained, where you trained and what have you. The bottom line here really is that there was variation in the management of early pregnancy loss based on emergency physician gender. Patients who were seen by female physicians were more likely to receive an obstetric consultation, initial operative management, and were less likely to return for operative management within seven days of their initial presentation. This mirrors other studies, the authors say, and I think where this is really useful in taking this forward is, is that we really need to consider that perhaps there is a gender bias in presentations, not only of um, early pregnancy loss, but across the other spectrum. Rick, what do you think? Well, it's fascinating stuff. And it really makes you think about what we need to do about this. Clearly, there was a difference, a significant difference in the consultation rate and referral for initial DNC. The authors have speculated that it might be because in previous research, women have been shown to have a lower tolerance of risk. However, they also point to the fact that that may actually be beneficial for patient outcomes. Patients who have been treated by women have had lower mortality rates, greater patient satisfaction, and that sort of lower tolerance of risk that has been demonstrated in a previous study was beneficial for the patients. So potentially that's a factor here. I wonder if there's an empathy issue as well. I wonder if it's easier for the female doctors to relate to the female patients around this issue and therefore they under, maybe greater understanding of what's going on for that patient and in, what's involved so getting the early consultation getting the early management rather than sort of leaving it to follow up in the outpatients I don't know but I think it seems worthy of further exploration for example with qualitative research to try and understand what's driving this and how do we even out those disparities because the care that you receive in an emergency department can't be different based on the gender of your emergency physician. So these are important disparities that we need to even out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as gender and the terms of gender get more complex and less rigid around female and male, it will be interesting as years come to see how people who uh, define their gender as anything other than female and male have an impact on you know patients that are treated and how the patients are identified, you know, identify themselves. And the reason why I bring that up, one of the key limitations of this paper was that obviously this is retrospective and this is, you know, using data about patients with only really two genders, male and female. And we know that the world is ever changing. So I think there is definitely some scope for for looking at that a little bit further. I'm going to hand over now to you to talk about older patients in the emergency department, Rick. Yeah, so I've had the pleasure of looking at a study from Yorkshire where they've retrospectively identified patients who called 999 and 111 and assessed the outcomes of patients based on a number of factors. So they're focusing on older adults aged over 75 and they've linked data between the ambulance service and the emergency departments. They've included over a million ED attendances with over 360,000 patients. And they've looked to see what factors are associated with three key outcomes. So that's the emergency department length of stay, so whether patients stayed in the emergency department for more than four hours or not, whether they were admitted to hospital from the ED, and whether they reattend within the next 30 days. 
They've controlled for some important factors, such as the percentage of overnight available hospital beds, the, the different emergency departments that patients have attended, and then there were also daily, seasonal, annual effects in the analysis. What they found is that each of those three outcomes, length of stay, admission rate, and reattending rate, becomes more frequent as you get older. So the baseline was, you know, they're all over 75, these patients. But within that, the older the patients get, the more likely they were to stay longer in the emergency department, to be admitted to hospital, and to reattend within the next 30 days. Men were more likely to be admitted to hospital and to reattend within the next 30 days. And if you were had less social and economic deprivation, then you were also less likely to have each of those outcomes. You were less likely to spend more than four hours in the emergency department, less likely to be admitted to hospital, and less likely to reattend within the next 30 days. Uh, also, if you were a frequent attendee, you were more likely to spend longer in the ED, more likely to be admitted to hospital, and more likely to, of course, reattend as you'd expect. The authors have gone on to have a look at whether the urgency that was assigned by the 999 or 111 call handler correlated with those outcomes, and it did. So if you were given a higher urgency by the call handler when you called for help, then you were more likely to have each of those outcomes, spend longer in the ED, be admitted to hospital, and be readmitted. So one of the things that the authors proposed is that perhaps we could be using that urgency designated by the call handler to anticipate whether patients are likely to be admitted to hospital uh, and to reattend, and then sort of we, we, you know, use that in our emergency department triage somehow. So it would need an evolution in our informatics systems where we could take account of that information, which is already available, the data's already been collected, to assign a priority to patients. Yeah, and it's really interesting, this set of data as well, because obviously we discussed um, a fair few months ago about the utility of sort of 111 for chest pain and the utility by um, younger patients. I think... I think definitely across, you know, the utility of the 1-1 service or the equivalent in Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland and, and other places, there is clearly more work needed to be done around how people are triaged there, what the expectations are, and also is it having an impact on outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. And a, a very interesting concept is this thing of linked data, taking the data that's already been collected and using that in the emergency department it, at the moment it would be really difficult to do that because our systems are just not linked but potentially you know you can see the efficiencies it can take us sometimes quite a long time to triage patients when there's such crowding but when we've already got helpful information from pre-hospital services that can help us to assign priority shouldn't we be designing systems that help us to use that information a bit better Absolutely. And sort of it goes back to the old adage, doesn't it? You know, what's the point in reinventing the wheel? Should we just use that information and then, you know, build upon it? Exactly. So sticking with the theme of older adults, you've taken a look, Sarah, at a paper looking at the association between major trauma centre care and the outcomes of adults injured by low falls. Yeah, so this is by Michael Tonkins et al. and has Fiona Leckie as the, one of the senior authors here in this paper. And this group 
has produced a lot of papers on on themes around trauma within um, England and Wales. And this was looking at um, the association between major trauma centre care and the outcomes of adults who are injured by low energy falls. So essentially, they use the TARN database. So that is the database in the UK where all trauma, so it's a trauma audit research network on adult patients, is collected and it includes children as well. And they looked at any adult over the age of 16 that had fallen using a low energy fall. Not surprising, the average or the median age was 79.4 years with a range of between 64.5 to 87.2 years, um, which suggests, and these are definitely the older adults, but that wasn't the intention of the paper. That is the people that get into this database. So what did they do? So they had over 127,000 patients were included within this database who about just over a quarter of them had attended initially uh, a major trauma centre. As I said, the median age was 79.4 years, so nearly 80 years old. And almost all of them were, were greater than 65 years. Once they looked at the data, which was looked at initially, looking at um, the outcomes of survival around major trauma centre care versus if you were treated in a local emergency department or a a trauma unit. And just for our wider listeners within the world that might be listening to this podcast, um, you've got major trauma centres, which, you know, have all specialties and all sites around the UK. And then the smaller local emergency departments are trauma units often. And the idea is from evidence um, that was developed back in the 2000s and since 2012 was that all patients that meet major trauma criteria should get sent directly to a major trauma centre when picked up by the ambulance. The reality is, of course, is that this doesn't always happen. And particularly the challenge around low energy falls is, and particularly in the older adults, as I'm sure all our listeners know, is that sometimes they don't appear to have major trauma. um, And they often wouldn't define and wouldn't um, flag up as major trauma because they've fallen from less than standing height. So while I digress a little bit, bringing it back to what we, they were looking at. So for major trauma centre care, initially was not associated with an improved 30-day survival. And this takes into account the patients that rocked up at the major trauma centre directly and all those that were transferred over. What is interesting is that when they looked at this data, they then did an ad hoc analysis and they removed all the transferred patients. So they they purely looked at then the odds ratio of 30-day survival for those that um, were managed in the major trauma centre as the initial care. And they found that the major trauma care was associated with a greater odds of survival at 30 days. Uh, particularly in the most severely injured cases with the adjusted odds ratio of being 1.126. So the bottom line is from this paper, I think there's there's a lot to unpick really. So for patients that arrive at a major trauma centre who have low energy falls, they are more likely to do better if they arrive at the major trauma centre. Those that are transferred and who start... um, 
their life in a major trauma uh, a major trauma unit or a local emergency department and then are transferred it's not that they don't do as well they do just as well but their odds ratio of survival is slightly a little bit less and then this brings into the question about you know how are we actually trauma triaging these patients that have low energy falls lots of these patients and i've been like lots of our listeners will have been working in recent days you know most most of the patients that i'm seeing in the last um, you know over the weekend are patients who have fallen from standing height but have ended up with for example multiple rib fractures injuries to their abdomen but actually they sit there with their normal observations going, oh, doctor, I'm a little bit sore, but, you know, I'm absolutely fine. And then it turns out they've got quite significant injuries. So I think there's a lot of work uh, and ideas and concepts that haven't been considered that this paper is, has brought out. Rick, what do you think about this? I think you made a really good point about occult trauma and the recognition. This paper kind of by default focuses on the care of the trauma, which of course is really important when we're talking about older patients with trauma. However, especially in those older patients, part of me wonders whether we also need to be thinking about major orthogeriatric centres as well as major trauma centres, because what we don't know from this paper is the burden of medical illnesses in the patients who sustain trauma. And in my experience, a huge proportion particularly of older adults who fall from standing, sustain major trauma, actually have concurrent medical illness that needs to be treated. And it's really important to recognise that. I know there are some centres of excellence around the country that place great focus on that for their, their trauma patients. Perhaps that's a factor here. They didn't see an association with mortality for the patients who receive major trauma care overall in this paper. And perhaps that could be explained a little bit by those medical illnesses that are concurrent. And also the TARN database, so the Trauma Audit Research Network database, you have to have a significant ISS score to get into the database to begin with. So there may be a series of patients who maybe have only single area injuries, such as maybe just a, one or two rib fractures, or maybe they've just got a small liver laceration, which wouldn't generate a high ISS score enough to get you to into the trauma database to then maybe even need a major trauma referral. So there is a whole cohort of patients that, you know, we may be underestimating their impact as well. And, you know, the authors have been very honest about lots of these topics that Rick and I are discussing. So it's definitely worth a read yourself to consider, you know, some of the impacts and how we might need to change this moving forward. Great. So really interesting paper. That's brought our sort of little focus on older adults to an end. Moving on, I've taken a look at a letter in the Emergency Medicine Journal this month, but it's a really important one because it highlights the James Lind Alliance priority setting partnership to set the research priorities for emergency medicine over the coming years. And it reports on the process. So they undertook a, a two-stage Delphi study where they get expert opinion from a number of different stakeholders. They uh, advertised to get research questions in PICO format very widely across the country. And those PICO questions were submitted. Then they entered those into this five-round Delphi study. Following that, they had a workshop with clinicians, patient and care representatives, and an independent facilitator. They wrote out lay summaries for each priority. And then ultimately, they assigned the top priorities 
for research in emergency medicine over the coming years. So first of all, I won't take you through all of them, but just to whet your appetite, uh, there's some clinical priorities. The first three were looking at the need to CT scan in patients who present with a head injury, but delayed after the injury. Who needs a scan and how do we decide? The second question was about pain management for patients with rib fracture. And the third question was about the use of CT scanning for older patients who have abdominal pain. There were also some priorities assigned to uh, issues around service delivery. So the first one, for example, relevant to that last paper, how can we safely triage silver trauma, which is kind of like those older adults with low velocity trauma? And how can we give quality end of life care in the emergency department? Some really interesting stuff. If you're interested in research in emergency medicine, you should definitely be familiar with these priorities. They've been identified as the top priority. So they're really just waiting for someone to come along and take the initiative, write a grant application, get funding and go and answer those questions for us so that we can advance our specialty. You couldn't have said it better yourself, Eric. And uh, yeah, um, I'm just going to try and find some time in my life to do that, <laughs> like us all. Absolutely. That's the key issue, isn't it? Well, if you can find that time, there's a really great resource for you here to have a look. Yeah, absolutely. Um, following on from uh, prioritising research, the next thing that we're going to focus on is a little bit about airway management. And so I've got a paper here looking at the development of the paediatric airway management checklist for the approach of the emergency department, a modified Delphi approach. Seem to have a lot of Delphi papers in this month's journal. And this was done by Miller et al. So again, this paper was trying to develop a more standardised approach to airway management checklists for the paediatric airway. So done in a standard Delphi form, it took 14 experts um, in airway management um, with and outside the paediatric emergency department to decide, you know, what are the priorities when intubating a paediatric airway. This was conducted using people from the US, Canada and Japan who have got a significant experience both in emergency medicine, critical care, paediatric anaesthesia, ENT, neonatology and emergency medicine. So all very paediatric and very emergency medicine centred. The bottom line is this checklist and this pre-intubation checklist, the, the factors included and, and nothing that wouldn't surprise us whether you're a, uh, you know, a paediatrician or a uh, emergency medic or an anaesthetist or anything like that. Um, but the things that they um, think are important are there's the assess and plan the intubation. So things to consider around risk factors for anatomically difficult airways, increased risk for desaturation, risk for hemodynamic instability, state what your plan is, state what your backup plan is. Second part, which is the preparing the patient. So get the right position, get the right monitors, get that your IV access or interosseous access is working. Pre-oxygenate that patient and prepare for apneic oxygenation. And finally, it's about getting your equipment ready, your personnel ready and your pharmacy. So everything from suction to the size of the tube to thinking about rescue devices and, you know, getting the right sedative and paralytic presence. Partly why I brought this paper up is just that I've never seen a paper quite like this that's really tried to hone what is needed across the way. And I think 
we're really lucky in the United Kingdom that we've got the a difficult airway society that produces a huge amount of really good um, guidelines around difficult airway management. And a lot of pre-intubation checklists are using that in mind, particularly that I've seen within the UK. But it's really nice to see sort of an international standard that people are trying to work towards. And, and Rick, what do you think? Well, we use the BOT's checklist for adult intubations. I can remember a time when we didn't have checklists and I now know what it's like using the BOT's checklist. I know that my practice has improved greatly from thinking through the plan for intubation. If we ever get a failed intubation or a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation, I think that mental preparation, having, having gone through the checklist, would really prepare as well. But also it just makes sure that everyone on the team is well briefed about exactly what we're doing. So I think this is a superbly helpful resource for paediatric intubations in the emergency department. Having a checklist that's so clear that we can use has immediate clinical relevance. And then that leads on to your paper around uh, the effect of the inclined positioning on first-pass success rate during endotracheal intubation, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Absolutely. So the rationale for this paper is that some studies have suggested that when we're intubating adult patients in the emergency department, we should use a head up tilt because perhaps it's going to reduce the risk of aspiration. Perhaps it's going to improve the chances of first pass success when we try and intubate the patient. So the authors have done a systematic review to, to have a look at all of the data and tell us what the evidence really tells us. Their primary outcome was first pass success, but they also looked at the evidence for a number of secondary outcomes. They included hypoxia, hypotension, mortality, time to intubation, the incidence of peri-intubation cardiac arrest, esophageal intubation, length of stay in the hospital, and the glottic view that you get. So they identified 10 studies, including over 18,000 intubations across four countries. Generally, the studies were of relatively low quality with a relatively high risk of bias, unfortunately. However, among those studies, when they did the meta-analyses, there was no difference in first-pass success with a risk ratio of 1.02, confidence intervals that clearly cross one, that weren't very wide, it would go from 0.98 to 1.05. So there's no difference in first-pass success. And there was no difference in any of those secondary outcomes at all. So there's really no signal to patient benefit when we use a head-up tilt for intubation in the emergency department. Once again, I think we've got a paper here that's got immediate clinical relevance to our practice. If you want to use head-up tilt when you intubate patients because you feel comfortable with it, well, absolutely fine because there's no signal to harm. But if you're more comfortable intubating your patient when they're flat, supine, you know what? The systematic review tells us that there's no suggestion that your patient's going to have worse outcomes as a result of that. So I think this really helpfully tells us, don't be dogmatic about it. It's fine to use what you're most comfortable with. And that's really great and reassuring to hear because I think there can be a lot of pressure to use technique A, technique B, technique C. And actually, I often find with any procedure, you know, be it intubation or anything else that, you know, go with what's familiar and works for you, particularly when it's in a stressful, time-pressured environment. Absolutely. So to finish off, we've got another paper. We wanted to cover this paper because it's got such immediate clinical relevance again. It's about drink and injection spiking in patients who present to the emergency department. It's a really nice paper 
And what we particularly liked about this paper, both Sarah and I, is that it's written by a medical student, Tess Blandemer. Uh, so uh, really nice to see a paper published by a medical student. And I tell you what, it's written to a superbly high quality. You should, you should check this paper out. So it's about these patients who present to the emergency department and they suspect that they've been spiked possibly by injection. It's been quite a topical issue over the last few years. I'm if sure if you work in an ED, you've encountered these patients. So the authors give us a case of a 19-year-old who's had some drinks in a nightclub, uh, then became hyperactive, aggressive, vomited, uh, then found a bruise and a puncture mark on the left thigh the next morning and attended the ED wondering if they had been assaulted. They were discharged, advised to contact police, who then advised her to go to the emergency department. She had a, eventually had, this patient had a, a rapid urine drug test, 19 hours after exposure. Uh, the patient was passed between ED and police. The police couldn't access the CCTV. They couldn't process the urine sample. The case was closed. No bloodborne virus risk assessment was performed. And the whole thing sounded totally unsatisfactory for that poor patient who believed that they'd been assaulted. So how can we do better? Well, this paper gives us some really helpful tips about that. One, it highlights that this is a growing problem and that there has been a real surge in complaints of uh, this nature and presentations to EDs. There have been three studies on the incidence of spiking among patients uh, that present with this kind of uh, this kind of uh, this kind of issue. Two of them were from the UK. One was in London. And in that one, there were 78 patients included. Eight of them had unexplained illicit or prescription drugs found. Now, we don't know if that was background drug use or if this was a genuine spiking, but still eight out of 78 had those found. In the second study from Wales, eight out of 75 urine drug streams were positive. Again, we don't know if that was background use or if this was because of the uh, alleged assault that they'd had, but still it was significant. They tell us, both studies tell us about the alcohol levels in those patients, and they were often high. I don't think that's particularly helpful because you can go out and have some drinks and still be spiked. The alcohol level doesn't tell you anything about whether it was a genuine spiking or not. And then the third study was from Perth. Again, 27 out of 101 patients uh, had illicit drugs detected. And only four of those were unexplained, though, by personal use history. So I guess it's suggesting that once they've accounted for personal use history, the prevalence appears to be relatively low, but it wasn't zero. Now, there are no published studies on spiking by injection. They did talk about the feasibility of spiking by injection because you might need a fair volume and that could be quite painful to do an IM injection. But there have been plenty of reports to police. So if someone presents with that spiking, generally, if you follow the tox-based advice in the UK, then you know, you're going to manage your patient symptomatically. From a clinical perspective, you don't generally need to do the drug screening, but you may do for forensic reasons, and that's where it becomes a police issue. Remember bloodborne virus screening. So if someone alleges they've been spiked by injection, then don't judge them. You should always take this on face value and still offer them bloodborne virus screening. So you should take a blood sample and we should retain that. Uh, we only offer HIV PEP if there's a clear history of needle use on another person or the patient's known to be HIV positive or a high-risk group. But we send the blood for storage. And uh, remember, of course, of course you know, that, that forensic issue. There is some, the ARCAM have written about this as well. It's a very useful resource. When I'm on call late at night, the juniors frequently ask me about presentations like this. So whether you're a junior or a consultant wanting to make sure you're a, you've got the latest evidence at your fingertips, read this because it's going to help you. 
there's very little else I can say. It is just a fantastic paper to read and so practical. So well done, all the authors involved. Absolutely. And that brings us to the end of April's podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much and look forward to chatting to you next month. Goodbye from me. And bye from me.